Dear Lord, we thank you once again, and we praise you for your word. We praise you uh, for these passages, which are extremely challenging, but we thank you for your perfect standard in all of it. We just pray that you help us to understand it this morning, help us to grasp what it is you're saying, and then change us through the work of your Holy Spirit as we study it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, very quickly, we do this review every week. We've studied the Beatitudes, the characteristics of a believer. That flows into the fact that we are salt and light. So if you want to look at an overview of chapter 5, the first section is really just kind of the characteristics of a believer. The second part that we've spent the most, uh, a lot of time in recently, is the Christian facing the law of God. And so we went into this, what is Christ's relationship with the law? Obviously he came to fulfill, not abolish. And then he's giving us six illustrations that show us that um, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And anyone who gets rid of any aspect of the law will be least in the kingdom. The law is significant. And really, we talked about there's a difference between the judicial law and the ceremonial law. And Christ is really here focusing on the moral law, which stands for all time. Obviously, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. He's not talking about fulfilling that part of it. But he's given us six illustrations as to how the Pharisees have misinterpreted this. And we went through murder, adultery, divorce, oath, retaliation, and enemies. Now I want you to notice this pattern here. In the eyes of the world, these sins get less significant as we go. Murder obviously being the biggest one to the world. Then adultery, then a divorce, then oaths, retaliation, enemies, how you treat your enemies. Is that even really a sin? I mean, don't we have the right to treat our enemies however we want? That's kind of the world's view of it. But I want you to notice this. There is a level of difficulty, an internal war, that almost becomes more difficult as we go. Murder, obviously that doesn't seem like that, that one that's, that's hard to not break. Obviously the way Jesus explained it with anger, it's much more significant. But we have this upswing of difficulty. Because, you know, things like anger and lust, and, and both of these really fit into the, the lust area, you can kind of recognize it. And then you can say, okay, I've got to fight against that. But when we got into oaths, all of a sudden, we're talking about stuff we just do unconscious, you know, unconsciously. The way we speak. It just kind of flows from us. That's a little harder to control. And then retaliation. And Jesus starts talking about the fact that even when that just that tinge of, oh, I've got to get back at them. What do, who do they think they are? Why do they can take my property? I earned that. That's something that's even more difficult to control. It's, it's just like part of who we are in our nature. And Jesus is saying, your nature is wrong. So it's just getting more difficult. And today we reach the peak. We're going to see this was kind of a negative command in the sense of when you feel that self rising up in you, don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Today's is really the positive side of that command. Here's what you should do. And it's going to just hit us right at the heart. So uh, if someone would... But I'm going to read Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
right? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do you do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Again, the formula in all six of these illustrations that he's given us is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I make this point every week because we must get this clear. Jesus is not contradicting the law, nor is he adding to the law. He is explaining the law. This is the way it has always been. So when he says, you have heard it said, this is Pharisaical tradition, not the Old Testament, not God's law. Um, God's law is perfect for reviving the soul, Scripture said. I mean, it's perfect. It doesn't change. And so he starts here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You have heard it said that you shall love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's look at the first phrase really quick. It says, you shall love your neighbor. And, um, this, is, this is found in Old Testament scripture. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, when you compare the just the first part of the Pharisee statement, you shall love your neighbor, and you compare that with Leviticus, did you hear anything that was missing? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Pharisees leave that part out. So, but this is a command in Old Testament Scripture that we are to love our neighbor. Now, neighbor can mean many things as we will go a little bit further, but then we have this line right after that that says, and you can hate, or you are to hate your enemy. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever find a command of God to hate your enemy. It just won't be there. This proves the point that we've been making all through all six of these illustrations, that this is Pharisaical misunderstanding that Jesus is pointing out compared to, uh, and not the law of God. So what did the Old Testament say about enemies? Well, there's a verse in Exodus 23, 4. Now, now just so you know, they're saying, the Pharisees here are saying, it is the command of God that you hate your enemies personally. Remember last week, that's what they did with an eye for an eye? That's not a, a thing for governments. That's a thing for you personally. When someone has wronged you, you should go get revenge. And so, flowing from that same thought is this teaching, you should hate them. But what does the Old Testament say? Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Does that sound like hate for your enemies? No. There's, there's several verses through the Old Testament Scripture. You can look them up if you want. I'm just going to read you two here. That was one. How about Proverbs 24, 17? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it 
and be displeased. That's Old Testament law concerning your personal relationship with your enemies. If you rejoice when they fall because you want it as revenge upon them, not because, you know, a wrong, if you, if you rejoice because a wrong has been stopped, that's one thing. But when you rejoice that they have fallen, them personally have gone down, what's it, I look at that and I am displeased. Now, how did the Pharisees come to this point? You know, there are passages in Scripture which talk about God hating. David talks about hating. So, how do we understand this? I mean, this is most likely where they picked up this idea. They would read things like the imprecatory Psalms. We studied that in the Psalms class, where David says, uh, you know, I hate them with a perfect hatred. In fact, Psalm 139 says this. David is speaking, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Now the Pharisees might have looked at that and said, See, there is our justification. Why do we need to spend a little bit of time on this? Because this is a struggle in the church today, and it's a struggle with every one of us, I think, to sometimes try to justify our hatred for our enemies with biblical text. Now, don't get me wrong. I know countless godly, wonderful street preachers out there doing the work of God and doing it right. But so often I'll see some of these men out there, and there is nothing in their heart that seems to be of love. It is, you are a liar. You are going to hell. God hates you. And the way they say it seems to be flowing from hatred in their own heart. And you ask them, why do you preach this way? Why do you talk this way? They will point to passages like this. Well, how are we to understand these passages? And we'll get to a point where, can there be any hatred in our heart? There's room for certain kinds, but not for the person. So how do we understand things like the imprecatory psalms? When we went through this, I gave you, I think it was like six or seven different things to keep in mind. Here's just four very quick things to keep in mind when we look at imprecatory psalms. By the way, imprecation, the term just means to call down curses on someone. So when you see curses being called down on people in the psalms, it's called an imprecatory psalm. Um, <clears throat> four things. One thing we need to realize is that hatred may actually be moral repugnance and not personal vengeance. So we do need to separate the two. We should hate sin. I mean, the old phrase is very cliche, but it rings with a certain amount of truth. Hate the sin, love the sinner. That's a difficult balance to walk, but there's truth to it. Um... So there is a kind of hate for sin and what that sinner represents that can coexist with love for that person. I'll let you guys try to sort that out, but it's possible. Another thing we need to think of is even in the New Testament, Paul calls down curses. Remember, if anybody preached to you another gospel, let them be anathema. 
That means let them be cursed to hell. But we have to understand, even in all that, Paul is not hating someone personally. He is saying, here is a standard of God that is right and just. The gospel should be proclaimed clearly and correctly. And those who twist it and distort it, if they will not repent, that is the just penalty. And I stand with God on that. He's not calling down, I hate Joe over here. I hate Lou. Uh, no, nothing personal vengeance about it. So we need to keep that in mind. Now when we get back to the imprecatory psalm, we need to remember this. David was functioning as a monarch, as a king. Remember what we studied last week about turning the other cheek? That is for personal relationships. That is not for the government. The government, as we read in Romans 13, is to bear the sword. And so when you read in precatory psalms, almost every single one of them, David is functioning as the monarch, as the magistrate, not in some sort of personal vengeance. So we need to keep that in mind as we look at these imprecatory psalms. So the Pharisees had misunderstood all of this, obviously, because we saw how much they misunderstood eye for an eye last week. Now we need to remember this. David is also something that none of us will ever be. He is a picture, a shadow, a typology of Christ. And Christ, though he loves his enemies, as we will see, he will ultimately pour down his wrath on those who will not repent. And David is reflecting that in his prophetic and typological psalms. So we need to keep these uh, things in mind. Now we need to also remember that uh, Stott says this, by the way. He says, uh, our hatred, and there should be some hatred in us, our hatred is of God's enemies and those who violate God's principles, not our own enemies. So there's a sense in which we should stand justly and say, look, if you're standing against God, you're in a bad situation. I'm with God. If he judges you, he's right. I'm not going to defend you against him. There's a sense that it's not about us personally. We do stand for what's right. Now, we also need to remember this. Hate is a very interesting term throughout Scripture also. How about Scriptures that say... Jesus says, if you do not hate your mother and father, you're not in the kingdom of God, or you'll never enter heaven. You know, you, you can't be, you're not fit to be my disciple, that's what the phrase says. Is that actually talking about a, a vengeance? I've got to have vengeance and discord and hatred for my family? That's not what that term means in that sense. It's very much a comparative thing. Jesus is using almost a sense, almost a hyperbole here to say, look, this is how great your love and devotion to me should be. That in comparison, your love for your parents, and you should have love for your parents, you should honor your parents, that is what the law says, that's what Jesus says, should almost look like hate in comparison. So we also have to understand the terms hate, even sometimes the way it's used in the Old Testament, what is really being said there. In this passage, when the Pharisees said, you shall hate your enemies, they're using it in that personal, sinful way. 
So why do we, do we not want to do this? Because even God loves his enemies. There is, there's different aspects to God's love that not everybody receives, but in, all, in a sense, he, he loves all. I mean, even Ezekiel 18.32 says, I have, God is saying, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. He also says, I take no pleasure in the, just, you know, the judgment of the wicked. So even in God, there is this, um, this love for all mankind. So there's three ways the Pharisees got it wrong. They misunderstood the law's treatment of enemies. They thought that meant you could go get vengeance when the law is very clear several places throughout that you are to help them when they are in need, feed them when they are hungry. Uh, this is all found in the Old Testament sit, uh, text. The other thing they did is they misunderstood the term neighbor. They thought neighbor just meant Jewish people who believed like me. That's your neighbor. That's who you're supposed to uh, take care of. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the word neighbor is used that way. But other times it is used in a very broad sense to talk of all mankind. Jesus corrects this later when he, does, when he gives the, uh, the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. The Lord says, who is my neighbor? And all of a sudden, the one that is your neighbor was the one, the Samaritan, that the Jews would have thought, that's my enemy. They're half-breed Jews. They don't really believe the right things. They're, they're against us. Jesus says, no, that's your, that's your neighbor. So they misunderstood the term neighbor, and they left out the fact that you should love them as yourself. Now, we've talked a lot about denying self and putting self to death, in a sense. But nowhere in Scripture are we told to loathe ourselves and destroy and try to destroy ourselves. There is a self-love that is healthy. And that just says trying to take care of yourself, trying to do what's best for yourself, you know, never at the expense of others. We always want to lift others before us, but there is a self-love that's healthy. And that is how we're supposed to love our neighbor. When you think of what it means to be healthy in trying to take care of yourself, that's the same standard you should put in loving not only your neighbor, but your neighbor in the universal sense, even those who are your enemies. Any thoughts or questions on that? Anybody have something they want to add to help the class? It seems uh, like uh, the common theme and everything that you've been talking about is the glory of God. Because yes. you, if that self-love is, is taking care of what God's given you for His glory because His image is... On you. Mm -hmm. So if you really love God and His glory, and then you know everything that we've been talking about, loving your enemies, and or you know you know hating the the way the way that David said it, he was zealous for God's glory mm -hmm. so much that he would go, I hate this other stuff because it's taking away you know it's it's trying to mar God's glory you know like and His image that's on these people over here you know that, that kind of stuff. So absolutely, and I think we'll see when we even get to application for today. I have some of that in there because that is the opposite of self love. It is seeking God's glory. Now, self-love in a good sense. Have you realized, you know, the chief end of man being to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? That even in seeking God's glory and diminishing our glory, that is good for you. That is good for me. That brings enjoyment to us. That brings pleasure. So there, there's a healthy sense of self-love even in denying yourself and giving glory to God. 
So the, the mix is there, but it, it, it's so much about the glory of God. Good point. All right. Let's go on to the next verse. It says uh, in verse 44, so here's the statement, what did Jesus teach? Um, it says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, before I give in, get into the explanation of this a little bit, have any of you seen that bumper sticker that's out there that just says things like, when Jesus said, love your enemies, I'm pretty sure he meant don't kill them. <laughs> to be honest with you, it comes from a, a liberal standpoint, kind of a sarcastic <clears throat> standpoint that would say that there are times when war is justified because, you know, their view, all war is, is unjustified, and so there should be peace in all and there would never be a time that someone should be put to death or killed. <clears throat> How are they misinterpreting Jesus' words there? The same way the Pharisees did last week. They're saying even the government shouldn't do it. America has the right to stand up against their enemies. And militarily. It's not about personal vengeance. So, I don't know, I, I, I think it's the same person. I just happen to get behind them every time coming home from work. <laughs> so maybe it's not as prevalent a bumper sticker as uh, I think it is. But, uh, you know, I just see that and I think, you don't understand the text. You don't understand what Jesus said. And you're applying it incorrectly. So, let's put that aside. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we're called to not only not retaliate, turn the other cheek, give when they ask, we are now called to love. This is the positive side of the command. What does he mean by love, though? See, many people seem to say that when we feel anger and hatred, we're just to simply ignore that and do good to them. And as long as we do that, we are fulfilling this command to love our neighbor. You can feel that angst. You can feel that hatred in there. But as long as you just ignore that and just bear through it and, and do this, then you're fulfilling this command. But is this really what Jesus is saying? When you get to this passage, it is amazing. Some of the most godly men I look to for biblical exposition, I think get it wrong on this. A.W. Pink points this one out. John Gill John Gill is one of my favorite commentators. He was right before Spurgeon uh, and uh, wrote some great stuff in his commentary. But he says this about this passage. He says, I apprehend the love which Christ exhorts his people to love their enemies is not to be understood as quod affectus. What he means by that as, as respecting our internal affections. Jesus isn't talking about that. He goes on, he says, I cannot believe that Christ requires of me that I should love a persecutor as I do my wife, my children, and my real friend or brother in Christ. But we should love them, quote, effectus, as to the effects of our lives, how we act, not necessarily according to our heart. That is, I'm required to do these things as they lay in my way and according to my ability, as a man would do to his neighbor whom he loves. Feed him when he's hungry and give back to him when he's thirsty. Is that what Jesus is saying here? What do you think? I mean, I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, there's no reason I'm afraid to answer now. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's using hyperbole and everything else. You know, he's going all the way to the opposite end of, you know, 
do not commit adultery, not even lust, you know, like, and he's yeah. using all of these things, and then we're going to pull back on this one and think he's not going to the extreme on that one? That is the exact point. Every one of these, the outward action is not the only thing that matters. The heart matters. The heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. It's all part of it. So why would this one, if we're going to interpret it that way, would seem to contradict everything we've said up to this point. So here's the thing we need to realize, and this is what I believe. When Jesus says, love our enemies, he means more than with outward <laughs> actions. He also means with our hearts. Here's the difficulty. How much control do we have over our own hearts? Can a leopard change his spots? What are you saying to me, Lord? This is, this is just kind of that, that heaviness of what Jesus is actually teaching here. The thing we need to remember here is Jesus meant to convict us here. That is what he's doing. He's got other things. He's setting a standard of how we should aim to live. But he's also showing us that we don't measure up. Even in our own nature, not only in our actions, but our own nature does not measure up. If we interpret every one of these at a low enough level where we can meet them, we have missed the point of all of this. Jesus is saying, you're here, the standard's here. Strive for this. There's no exceptions. Every time we fail to miss it, it's a sin. But you don't meet it. That's the point. And we'll explain more on that as we go. Um, and as we do this, as we love them, what flows from a heart of love? Prayer in the life of the Christian. Love your enemies and pray for them. Now there is all sorts of teaching which I believe actually is accurate in the sense of what it applies to us because our hearts don't always love them. That when you start praying for them, sometimes your affections for them will begin to change. That's a true teaching, and that's something we have to put in place when our hearts are not right. But the standard is here that because we love them, our heart should produce prayer. So, um, this is why statements like this, this is why Martin Lloyd Jones, I believe, is saying these statements are discouraging to self sufficiency to that sinful nature that is within us. Just cutting it at its root, saying you're not there. But at the same time, these passages are also some of the most encouraging. Let's go on to the next verse. Oh, before I do that and start looking at the encouraging part, is there anything anybody wants to add to this section? Now, would you, when Paul talks about unless we love or Everything we do is like a clanging symbol and so on. Would you, is that the same thing? In other words, is that unless we have that affection, uh, I that think we're a clanging symbol, even though we might have good results or good mm -hmm. actions. I believe he's. I think he's talking about genuine love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is all these things. I don't think those flows from hearts that are. Uh, that don't really love. So I believe there is an aspect of that. Weren't we all at enmity with God before, you know, yeah. the word of God and came to a saving faith? Yeah. And isn't that a picture of Christ when he died for us? Absolutely. 
Yeah, Christ is the example here, which, which is what we go to next. So do, does that cause a conflict for you, or is that just something you're trying to think through? Or just well, I, I guess I'm, I'm personally still somewhat on a journey with that goes down to a very important question of what is love ultimately? You know, the, the emotion or doing right? And, and when we lack the emotion, then is it, is it still love nonetheless when we do right? And anyway, I'm, I'm I, I think one of the things we can get caught up on and probably misunderstand is the word affections or emotions. I'm not talking about a bubbly kind of a, just a feeling. I'm talking about an, act, an actual desire to do good to a person. That's an affection of the heart. But it doesn't mean I just have warm feelings for them all the time. I just, oh, I just want to embrace them and just cuddle them and whatever. I mean, that, that's more of an emotion. And I guess what I'm kind of going here is, is an affection, a desire, a nature that's desiring to do good. So that might cause, that might help clear some of the debris but I would agree yeah we're just looking at an emotion and how I just kind of feel if I were to feel bubbly I mean sometimes I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like that towards anybody (laughs) you know but still do I want what's best for them yeah so I mean maybe we need to decipher that a little bit well I think the important thing in this area is just like all the other ones Christ's goal is to tell them you can't do this there's nothing you can do, Pharisees, as well as believers, to, to do this. And it drives them to that hopelessness of, I can't do this on my own. And, you know, that's where the Pharisees were going, is they thought they could do all this on their own. So, you know, that's that's where it's going. And I can't love my enemy. What causes the street preacher to go out there and continue to preach to those who scream at them, yell at them, whatever? It's a love that they don't have, that God has given them that love for the lost. And I think that goes back to the Beatitudes of, Peacemaker, the merciful, and so on, and how that all ties into into that. What Christ's goal is to do is say, "You're yeah. lost. You're hopeless. You can't do this on your own." The law, yeah, that's the law. Drive us to Christ. Empty us. Drive us to Christ. Absolutely, great point. And uh, you know, and, and what Eric's doing there is what every one of us should do. Whenever we hear a teaching, whenever we hear something, how does this fit with other scriptures? If there's a conflict, one of them's wrong, and we need to address it. And so that's. Always do that. I mean, Eric's been doing this for years. This is second nature to him. But, I mean, that, that's just, that's what we need to be doing. And so, anytime I teach or you're reading through passages and you think you have an understanding, think through other passages, that, the same themes. How does it fit? All right, we need to move uh, to get through the rest of this. But he goes on. Um, so, we were looking at, this is kind of the discouraging part. We don't measure up. But what is the encouraging part? If we ask the question, why should we love our neighbor? There's two reasons. The first one is found in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's why. Now, one thing we must understand as we've looked through this in the entire Sermon on the Mount up to this point is Jesus is not saying, if you do this, you merit being my sons and daughters. Do this and you get saved. That is not what's being said here. We've seen verses throughout the Sermon on the Mount already that say you're already blessed. The kingdom is already yours. We looked at the very opening beatitude. 
poor in spirit, spiritual bankruptcy. You can't be spiritually bankrupt and still think, if I do this, I get God's approval. So this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying do this and you get to be saved. He's saying something similar as in Matthew 5.16 where he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Your Father. Not your employer, your master you're trying to appease or to gain approval of. Your Father. He's already your Father. Because you're already His child. But children, we can, rep, we can uh, reflect our Father. We can be like our Father. That's what this is saying. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You're already His children. When we live this way, we look like our Father. That is encouragement. And all this discouragement that we don't measure up, we don't measure up. He's saying, you're already my children. And you can even look like me. And reflect me to the world. So that is great encouragement. This is how discouragement turns to encouragement. And why? How do we reflect him to the world? It goes on in verse 45. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. God does good even for his enemies. The farmers... Of America or anywhere in this world, you have some that are godly and some that are wicked. <coughs> and God gives them all sun and He gives them all rain. Both good things that are needed. This is really the theme of common grace. The fact that to all mankind, God is doing good. Do you realize that all mankind alive today? God would have been just to send them all to hell. Those he knows are not going to come to him. He would have been just to send them to hell. The fact that he's giving them more time on this planet and he gave us more time and brought us to repentance for the believer, that's just a goodness. He does not owe anyone. And he does this even for his enemies and those who will never come to him. When we studied Psalm 36 in the Psalms class, we looked and that Psalm is an amazing... Uh, contrast between the sinner, the sinfulness of man just in his nature, uh, kind of an unregenerate person, a non-born again person, and God's goodness. And when it gets to God's goodness, as he showed that man is just this, it's wicked, it's our hearts, we love sin, we lay in bed, we meditate on it, we do all these things. It says this in Psalm 36 verse 7, God says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, all mankind, not just some of them, Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He provides shelter. He provides food. He provides all these things. They feast on the abundance of your house. And your house in this passage, I think, really just means the earth. The abundance of the earth. And you give them drink from your river of delights. God does this for everyone. To provide this world. Even though it's fallen. Even though it's corrupt. There, there, there are delights here that God gives all kinds. So there's a love. And we are to reflect that in our lives to those who are not uh, even his people and those who hate us and as Mike has already pointed out the ultimate example was that we were at enmity with God he sought us and he saved us why would we not do that for our enemies at least seek them love them try to do good to them so that they can see our good works and glorify our God in heaven 
Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If we simply love those who love us, don't even those who don't have a new nature have been born again, don't, don't even they do that? What's special about that? Even the tax collectors, you know, the ones that uh, were kind of traitors because they started working for Rome and they would collect taxes from God's people to give to Rome. Not only that, when they did it, they would steal extra money for themselves. Even those people do that. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember when Zacchaeus got saved? He had to go and give sevenfold back to all the people he stole from because that was just the nature of the tax collector. We think of wicked people. Even wicked people love people that love them. That's just the way it is. So the verse goes on in 47 and it says, And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing other than... What are you doing uh, more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Here's the key. As believers, we are to do more than the world. Never look to the world for your standard. We are to do more. What more are you doing than others? We belong to a different kingdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The Christian is at once, and by primary definition, is a man who stands out in society. You cannot explain him in terms of the natural man. So the question remains, what are we doing more than others? What is it about us that stands out from natural men? Is there anything? Again, here's that discouraging, convicting part. We should strive for that. Even, uh, I think it was Paul, said, outdo one another in love and good deeds, even just among the church. Work to outdo in a a good, competitive, fun way. Not in a, I'm going to beat them, but uh, outdo each other. That's how we're to live. Verse uh, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your Father is perfect. Psalm 18.32 As for God, His way is perfect. God's standard, this is the standard of God and His law. Perfection. What does this mean? This means perfection. There's no way to lower this. If we lower this to mean, well by perfection He just kind of means complete you know, get everything together in your life. You would be sinning. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, this is the peak. This has been the law for all time. Be perfect as I am perfect. And perfectly love your neighbor. Everyone you come in contact with. Even the Samaritans. This statement is the final blow to any self-righteousness we may have. Because if you think you meet the standard, and if I think I meet the standard, we are so delusional. That is the standard. Do you see this as a summarizing statement for the entire chapter 5, or within the context of love your enemies? Because it seems like it could be a 
applying to everything that goes before it? I think it applies to, yeah, I mean, it would include all of this, actually. I would say it definitely includes the six illustrations of Christ and the law, but I think it also includes the Beatitudes. That's Would that then make a break for the next section? or There is a break for the next section. Yeah, we are moving in next week into an entirely new section. Uh, the, chapter 6 really deals with, uh, now how do we live in light of the knowledge that we are in the presence of God? That's what chapter 6 is going to be about. Chapter 7 is most likely going to be about how we live in light of the fact that we know there's a future judgment. So we do. We switch gears next week. But uh, it is a summary of everything that's been said. So how do we do this? What is the application? Let's just end it with this. What is the application to all of this? Not, I mean, this is primarily, but also everything here. If we're going to love our neighbors, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives three quotes that I think are very helpful here. And it goes back to what we talked about last week when you've got to deny self. It's about the death of self. He says, the key to loving your enemies is to be detached in the sense that their actions do not determine your love for them. You must be detached. There must be a detachment between their actions and your love for them. How does that happen? It can only happen through a second detachment. That means we must also be detached from ourselves in the sense that our love for them is detached from what they do to us. When people wrong you, don't, we can't muster up and say, who are they to do that to me? Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about self and all of this. He says, as long as a man is living for himself, he is sensitive, he is watchful and jealous. He is envious and therefore always reacting immediately to what others do. You catch that? When we live for self, we really live at the command of others because they're the ones moving us with their actions as we try to guard, protect, and just, just you know, glorify ourselves. When you live for self, you're actually living for others. But when you live for the glory of God, God, as Mark has said, you live at His command, not the command of others. So let's just ask this question. Think back through this week. What governed you more? Was it what others did to you and your response to what was going on around you? Or was it your desire to bring glory to God? Jesus has said, and we'll end with this, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter heaven, not enter the kingdom. When we studied a few, uh, a few points back, I can't remember which one it was, I made this point, and it stands for all of these. Through sanctification, our righteousness, we should have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, though they looked like they were up here, were way down here. We should, as believers, have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. But we must never confuse that righteousness for the righteousness that saves us. We grow in sanctification, but the fact that we grow in righteousness is never the reason God is going to look at you and say, because of that righteousness that's in you, you're saved. The righteousness that saves us was Christ's perfect, holy righteousness. Christ fulfilled the law. 
He did what we could not. The standard is perfection, and he met it. Then he took our sins and bore every ounce of wrath that we deserved on the cross. And then his perfection was given to us, and we are counted righteous. I've said this before, but when God looks at us, he does not look at us and go, you are sinners who can no longer be punished because the punishment is met. No, he looks at us and says, righteous, you meet the requirements. You have fulfilled everything that was required in Christ. And because of that, you can not only not be punished, you get the reward to be co-heirs with Christ. That is the reason we are saved. That is justification. But there must also be sanctification. There must also be a growing that is going on. If you felt any discouragement through this, thinking, I don't measure up, just thank you, Lord, for the justification, but man, do I have a lot of work to do. Is this really ever going to happen? Let me give you Philippians. Being competent of this very thing, he who begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Are you convicted by any of this? Is it spurring you on to get closer to the Lord through His Word and through prayer? If so, that's an evidence that He is doing the very work He has promised to complete. And eventually, in glorification, when we stand before Him, we will have that final perfection when we see Him face to face and we become like Him. He is perfect, and His, purpose, his purposes do not change. I read you Psalm 18 when we looked at the perfection of God. It says, as for God, his ways are perfect. A few verses later, David says this. It is God who goes with me and gives me strength and makes my way perfect. We don't strive for perfection. We strive to be with the Lord. And the Lord gives us what we need. And he provides and he sanctifies and he works us. God does it all. He finds us, He calls us, and He perfects us. So just move forward in that. Take courage in it. Any final questions or thoughts on this that you'd like to maybe add to the class? Or clarifications? All right. Okay. I thought I saw a hand really quick. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Lord, we thank You for this passage. We thank you for your standard being perfect and that you never violate it. We love you for that. We thank you for providing the perfection that we lack in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we just ask that as we strive to love our neighbors as ourselves and love our enemies as ourselves and pray for them, Lord, that you move in our hearts because we know still, even with the new nature you've given us, there's sin that still dwells in us. We just pray for your sanctifying work in our lives. Give us a desire to do good to those who do not do good to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.